We're looking uh, over these Sunday mornings at uh, parables that Jesus told in Luke's Gospel. And uh, this morning, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Uh, uh, Several years ago now, in fact uh, a good number of years ago now, uh, Caroline and I had a wonderful summer holiday in Canada. Uh, We uh, uh, arrived in Vancouver and then drove over towards uh, the Rockies. And as we arrived towards the Rockies, uh, we um, uh, were given one of these leaflets. It has a picture of a bear on the front and it says, Vous êtes au pays des ours, which roughly translated means you are in bear country. I know that because it says it on the other side in English. And... um, uh, as, uh, as we got this uh, leaflet, it was telling us that uh, you know, while, of course, you might enjoy the fantastic Canadian Rockies, um, there are um, uh, serious concerns about coming face-to-face with a bear. Uh, before we arrived, we were looking forward very much to uh, seeing a bear in the distance. Once I got this, I didn't want to get anywhere close to a bear. It tells you about how you can uh, be- beware the bears. Um, tips for safe camping, put away food and garbage, you know, so they don't come sniffing it out during the night. Use a flashlight, that's for us a torch at night. Stay away from dead animals and berry patches. Watch for bear signs, you know, tracks, fest, uh, fresh droppings, uh, those sorts of things. Leave your dog at home, apparently bears and dogs don't go well together. So uh, you can do all those things to kind of try to make sure you don't come face to face with a bear. Uh, But then it says, um, uh, bear confrontations, despite taking all the precautions outlined in this brochure, you may still encounter a bear. And it tells you what to do if you do. Uh, The first bit of advice on this leaflet is do not run. Uh, You come face to face with a bear, do not run. Most bears can run as fast as a racehorse. A scream or a sudden movement, such as running, can trigger an attack. So don't run, second bit of advice, watch the bear for aggressive behaviour. This includes snapping its jaws together, making a woofing sound or keeping its head down with its ears laid back. Any bear that moves towards you should be considered aggressive. (laughs) So don't run. Uh, Watch the bear for aggressive behaviour. Third bit of advice, keep calm. (laughs) Assess the situation. There's no guaranteed life-saving method of coping with an aggressive bear, but calm behaviour has proved to be the most successful. Then it says sometimes bears will bluff. Sometimes bears will bluff their way out of a threatening situation by charging and then veering away at the last second. So, back away quietly. Never run. (laughs) Well, as you can see, it's very helpful uh, having this information. And then it tells you uh, what to do if you come face-to-face with a grizzly bear and what to do if you come face-to-face with a black bear because you're supposed to do different things. Grizzly bear, playing dead, curling up in a ball, covering your face, neck and abdomen may be effective. Remain still until the bear leaves the area. So you've got the idea, grizzly bear. If it's a grizzly bear, you sort of curl up into a ball, a bit like a hedgehog. If it's a black bear, however, playing dead is seldom appropriate. Try to escape to a secure place, such as a car or building, or climb a tree. (laughs) Grizzly bear into a ball, black bear up a tree. Got the difference? And then it gives you this uh, rather helpful um, uh, picture, or two pictures, uh, one of a a black bear and the other of a a grizzly bear so that you know which to do. Black bear. Colour varies from pure black to cinnamon or blonde. (laughs) Grizzly bear. Colour varies from black to blonde. Uh, This is hopeless. (laughs) 
um, as you can imagine, as I was uh, reading this uh, leaflet, my, uh, my thought of a lovely uh, stroll through the Canadian Rockies was uh, t- t- turning, turning into a disaster in my mind. And indeed, as Caroline and I uh, arrived in the Rockies, we put our walking boots on and decided that we'd go for a, a wonderful stroll uh, through the Rockies. And uh, on the very first time we did that, um, it was idyllic really, you know, on holiday with the lady I loved, the sun was shining in the Rockies, and we saw a notice put there by a park ranger, a bear has been sighted in this area, beware. Well, I had this in my mind. (laughs) We'd been warned, Caroline and I at that moment had to decide whether that warning was there to ruin our fun or protect us from a very real and present danger. Now, this striking and stark parable before us this morning is no different. As we listen to it, we have to decide whether it is there to ruin our enjoyment of life or to protect us from a very real danger ahead. As we listen to it, please, let's not forget that it is told by Jesus Christ, for me, the most loving man who has ever lived. The most loving man who's ever lived warns us of a very real danger, the danger of hell. Uh, It is a story of two men, two destinies... And it will leave us with two questions. Firstly, two men. Uh, The first man is phenomenally wealthy. Do you see it there in verse 19? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Material prosperity oozed from this man. He lived the high life. Dressed in purple, the colour of royalty, and fine linen, the cloth of opulence. Verse 20, his house was fronted by huge gates. In the original, the word gate there describes an enormous ornamental portico. Think of the gates of Buckingham Palace. This rich man lives in a mansion, a castle. And you'll see in verse 21, the beggar outside his gates longed to eat the scraps that fell from this man's table. He ate like a king. His clothes, his food, his house, he lived like royalty. He was so rich that the credit crunch didn't touch him, not really. Now that's the first man. And then there's the second man. He lived in abject poverty, as extreme as the first man's opulence. Verse 20, at the rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. This poor beggar man, you see, had nothing. Verse 20, he was laid before the gates of the rich man, suggesting that perhaps he was a cripple, laid there each day by others. There are no fine clothes on this man's back, just open sores. Saws that end of verse 21 were licked by the mangy street dogs. This poor man spent his life begging for scraps. Verse 21, dinner time was ripping open the rich man's bin liners. However, there is one thing that this man had that the rich man didn't. Did you see it there in verse 20? It's very easy to miss, but it's very important. Do you see what he has in verse 20 that the rich man doesn't? He has a name. His name is Lazarus. And his name means he whom God helps. This man, Lazarus, without two pennies to rub together, had something worth more than gold. He was known by God. He knew God and God knew him. So here are the two men. One utterly destitute, the other fabulously wealthy. And I want to ask you this morning, who would you rather be? If you had to be one of these two men, who would you rather be? Now, as I ask that question, you may think that it's an insult to your intelligence to even be asked the question. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, from two men to two destinies, verse 22. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It's a remarkable story, this one. By the end of the fourth verse, all the main characters are dead. Uh, But the surprising thing, although everybody's dead, it's not the end of the story. You see, a parable is a literary device for telling us spiritual truths and this parable tells us the truth that death is not the end. See, read on, verse 23. In hell, where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. See, it tells us death is not the end. The coffin is not an exitless box. Uh, The question that I often get asked is is whether there is life after death. In this parable, Jesus tells you, oh yes, there is. There is life after death. And this parable tells us, and that's not the issue that we should concern ourselves. The big question this parable encourages us to ask is not whether there's life after death, but where will I spend life after death? In heaven? Or in hell. Now, please, let's remember who's speaking these words. These are the words of Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived. He speaks of hell. When I take uh, funerals, I find that people like to believe that there is a heaven. Of course, they do. They like to hear the words of Jesus about heaven. Perhaps the words in John 14, where Jesus describes heaven as a homecoming. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. People love those words. Of course they do. But you see, there is no integrity in the position that speaks so positively about Jesus' teaching on heaven and then ignores Jesus' teaching on hell. We can't have it both ways, can we? If we want to accept the words of Jesus about heaven, and I do, we must engage with his teaching on hell as well. But listen, he teaches us about hell because he loves us. He's warning us of the danger of hell. And he wants us to see the way that we can avoid going there. That's why he's persuading us in these very stark words. Well, see the contrast between the destiny of these two men. When Lazarus, the poor beggar man, dies, verse 22, he is carried tenderly by the angels of heaven to Abraham's side. In heaven, we read, end of verse 25, that he is comforted. He enjoys a life of comfort. By contrast, the rich man, well, he's in hell, verse 23, in torment. End of verse 24, he is desperate for relief from the agony that he's in. In verse 27, he's now doing, uh, he's now the one doing the begging, do you see? begging that Lazarus be allowed to go and tell his brothers of the danger they're in, so that, verse 28, they will not also come to this place of torment. He's begging now. An ex-colleague of mine, when I was in the newspaper industry, used to say to me when we spoke of heaven and hell, he used to say of hell, I don't mind going there, all my mates will be there, we'll have a party. Look, that is not how this rich man sees it. He is desperate, desperate, that his friends don't join him in hell. It is such a terrible place. And so now, as we look at the two men, let me ask you the same question that I asked a few moments ago. Who would you rather be? If you had to be one of these two men, who would you now rather be? Again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? 
You want to be Lazarus, don't you? In heaven, in comfort. But this is why I think this parable is so powerful. My guess is you didn't want to be him before, did you? And that is the issue behind the telling of this parable. See, look back to verse 13 of chapter 16. And let's see the build-up to the parable. Jesus, you see, had just told another parable in the first part of chapter 16. And here's the punchline, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a very definite statement from Jesus, isn't it? You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus doesn't say it's hard to serve both God and money. It'll take a bit of juggling to do. It's not always going to be easy to serve both God and money. No, he says categorically, you cannot serve both God and money. Either God will be your master or you will serve money. You will either put God first or you'll put money first. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not possible, says Jesus. And as he said that, and this is the thing that has hit me most of all in my preparation this week, as he said that, look how the Pharisees responded. Now, before you look, as we look at the Pharisees' response, remember the Pharisees were highly religious people. They were respectable. We often look at the Pharisees and we think they're the bad guys. They are the people who are most like us. They were respectable. They were Bible reading. They were Bible believing people. The Pharisees were people who prayed, who went to church, well, synagogue, but they went to church. They knew their Bibles. They took their religion very seriously. The Pharisees were people who would have given away a tenth of everything they earned. They gave a tithe, 10% of everything. Now remember that as you read their response when Jesus has just said, You can't serve God and money. Look what the. The Pharisees say, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Very telling, isn't it? They loved money. And so they sneered at Jesus' declaration that you can't serve both God and money. They were the religious people who loved money. What do you mean you can't serve both God and money? It's exactly what we're doing. They really didn't believe Jesus on that. And so Jesus says to them, verse 15, You are the ones who who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. What is highly valued among men? What is highly valued among men? Well, what's Jesus talking about? It's wealth and material comfort, isn't it? It's the high life. It's the self-made man. It's the entrepreneur. If you like the programme, it's the dragon in the dragon's den. That's who we admire. It's the large house, the big car, the foreign travel, the country cottage, the fine clothes, the rich food. That's what's highly valued among men. That's what people are striving for. That's a lifestyle people envy. I find it every time I see somebody who's done well on television or somewhere else, I look at them and I think, fantastic, I'd love to be like them. Isn't that right? What is highly valued, end of verse 15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. What is highly valued among men? Wealth, luxury, opulence. That is why when I first asked the question, who would you rather be? If you had to be one of these two men, who would you rather be? My guess is that in your mind you answered the rich man living in luxury. 
But look what we're saying when we say that. We would rather be the rich man, even though he is a thoroughly selfish, heartless and quite ruthless individual. He paid no attention to the poor beggar man, Lazarus, who was dumped at his gate day after day. He wasn't moved by the plight of the homeless man who needed medical attention. He didn't care for the man who lived off the scraps in his wheelie bin. The man who didn't have any clothes on his back. Well, he lived in luxury day after day, and yet we would rather be him. We would rather be selfless, heartless, rich men and have a life of luxury. Because end of verse 15, what is highly valued among men is exactly that. That's what we value. We value wealth so that we'd rather have luxury than be the poor beggar man, Lazarus, even though Lazarus has a name. He knows God and he is known by God. Now that I think is why Jesus said, end of verse 15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The thing that we so value, wealth and money and luxury, is a disaster if we love it. Because we cannot serve both God and money And then we will love money and not God. And that, I think, is why Jesus told this parable. The most loving man who ever lived put it in the most stark and graphic way he could to help us see what we should really value most highly. See, as we look at these two destinies, Jesus says, will you play the long game? Have the the long-term investment in you. We're thinking about investments all the time at the moment with the credit crunch and everything. Have the long-term investment in view. Look at things from eternity's perspective. Do you want to be... Who do you want to be then? Who's in comfort then? What matters then? He has to give us that picture because we just don't get it now, do we? We just think it's all about now. What matters then is to know God and to be known by God. It's a no-brainer when we look at it from eternity's perspective. From eternity's perspective, serving money, highly valuing wealth and luxury is a disaster because you cannot serve both God and money. Two men, two destinies, finally two questions. Here's the first question, I put it on the handout. Do you know God? Do you know God? It's a crucial question because it affects eternity. Look at verse 26. There are no second chances beyond the grave, verse 26. Beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. There are no second chances and so we need to deal with this question now. Now, while we still have a chance. See, as we read this story, I think we're like the men in verse 28, the people who are still living. We're the ones who still have the chance to serve God and not serve money. The rich man in hell now was desperate for his brothers to be saved from hell. See verse 27, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they'll not also come to this place of torment. Send Lazarus to my brothers. 
Send Lazarus to warn my brothers of the dangers of hell and of eternal torment. And look what Abraham says to him in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. See what he says? He says they've got a Bible, haven't they? The Gideons came into their school and gave them one when they were teenagers. They've got a Bible in their shelf. Let them listen to Abraham. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. You see what he's saying? He's saying all you need to do to avoid hell is written in here, in this book. Uh, The rich man's response is quite typical. Verse 30, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. And my, de- my neighbour said something very similar to me. Not neighbour here, neighbour somewhere else. He said, uh, if only, he was a lovely man. It wasn't an aggressive comment. He said, if only I could see a miracle, then I'd believe. Well, lots of people say that, don't they? Oh, if somebody rose from the dead and, and stood before me, then I'd believe. Please, don't be, don't be deceived. It's not a miracle we need. The Bible gives us enough information, enough evidence, enough to believe. The issue actually isn't one of evidence, it is one of obedience. Do you want to obey God or do you want to serve money? If you don't believe the Bible, it doesn't matter what happens. It's what Abraham says in verse 31. He said, if they don't uh, listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, let me ask you this morning, do you know God? Are you known by God? If not, will you read the Bible? I wonder when was the last time you read the Bible. If ever, maybe you were at at, at school and you were given a Gideon's Bible. Maybe the last time you ever picked up a Bible was when you were a kid at Sunday school or or, or, or when you were given that that, that Bible by the Gideons. Maybe, Maybe that was it. Have you ever read the Bible as an adult, seriously thinking these things through? Can I encourage you to do that? Let me encourage you. What are you saying? I can't get through all that book. You don't need to get through the whole book. Get through Luke's Gospel. I've got some. Will you read Luke's Gospel? It won't take you long. Read it carefully. We're talking about eternity here. A little investment. It'd be worthwhile, wouldn't it? I'd love to give you one of those as you leave. And you can begin to discover if, how to know God. If you know God. You could pick up one of these as well. They're our... Um, um, Welcome to Christchurch Forward booklets. You'll, you'll find them at the end of the rows. And at the end of the row, there's, uh, at the end of uh, the booklet, there's a little tear-off slip. You fill that in, and we'll tell you about our Christianity Explored course that begins in October, uh, where you can find out more about these things. See, the first question, do you know God? It, it couldn't be more important, because eternity hangs on it. Here's the second question as we come to the end. Again, it's on the handout. Are you serving money? Now you see, I think this is the big question for most of us here. Those of us who attend Fullwood every week. Those of us who would say, yeah, I do know God. You see, we're just like the Pharisees. Well, I hope we're not, but they're the people we're most likely to be. Are you serving money? That was the challenge to the Pharisees. Most of us are like them, respectable, religious people, people who say our prayers, who read our Bibles, who give money away. Maybe we give as much as the Pharisees. Maybe we're even giving away 10% of everything we earn. This is still for us. That is what is so shocking about this parable. It's told to arrest people just like us, evangelical Christians who love money. You can't love God and money. 
Like the Pharisees, despite what Jesus says in verse 13, we think we can serve both God and money. Honestly, I've been rocked to my boots reading this this week. We, we value luxury more than knowing God, don't we? We think we're okay with God and that eternity is secure, but just like this rich man, we can ignore the plight of the poor. This is a very telling parable for us living here in Wealthy Forward. For there are many on our doorsteps in this city who have nothing. This is a telling parable for us in the middle of the summer vacation where many of us will have spent hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds on our holidays while some in this city have never had a holiday, ever. This is a very telling parable for us living in the opulent West. For there are so many all over the world who live in absolute poverty. The world's need is staggering. A conservative estimate suggests that one billion people live below the United Nations poverty line, which is considerably lower than the British poverty line. At least 200 million of these people are evangelical Christian brothers and sisters. 20 million are displaced refugees outside their homeland. Many more are innocent victims of wars and natural disasters. We live in luxury. And we ignore their plight. And we seem to get so uptight about some things and not others. And uh, one American writer asked this question. Why is it that some conservative... I mean, he's writing to an American audience, but you can do the, do the sums in your own mind. Why is it that some conservative Christians launch, launch passionate boycotts of Disney because of its apparent promotion of the gay lifestyle in certain settings, but care not a whit that Nike employs countless factory workers in the third world and pays them virtual slave wages. Yet, in one year, Nike paid Michael Jordan as much for promoting its sneakers as they paid their entire 18,000-member Indonesian workforce that produced those sneakers. Does it not say something about us when we hear of these things but do nothing about it? Are we not just like the rich man? The rich man was aware of deep human suffering and he didn't lift a finger to help. Lazarus begged at his gates, covered in sores on his doorstep and the rich man continued to live like a king. Now, In his excellent book, Preaching the Parables, uh, Craig Blomberg gives this sermon on this parable, the provocative title, Can I Be Saved Without Stewardship? Let me quote from him. The point is not the percentage of one's giving, but one's attitude. Does a parable or sermon like this make you ask yourself, how can I do more? Or do you start to do a slow boil and get upset with the preacher, or perhaps even with Jesus, for having raised the topic in so pointed a fashion? I've titled this sermon, Can I Be Saved Without Stewardship? That is, without generous Christian giving of many different kinds over a lifetime. I believe it's as logically impossible as saying we've experienced God's forgiveness without forgiving others or that we know his love without loving others. He has been phenomenally generous in giving us eternal life and when he's blessed us with material abundance on top of that, how can we not share generously from it if his spirit truly dwells in us and guides us?
Blomberg is saying, if we're really Christians, we'll give to the poor. Let me clearly underline this as we close. This is not teaching salvation by works. This is not saying, I am saved by my giving. No, this is just saying what the book of James says, that faith in Christ without deeds is dead. It's not real faith at all. As we close, uh, turn with me to James chapter 2 and you'll see how James puts it. And I think he'll put the parable into this context so that we don't misunderstand the parable. It's page 1214. James chapter 2 and verse 14. Now James, of course, is the brother of Jesus. He will have heard Jesus speaking on this, so this is what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Uh, Flip over uh, to chapter 5 and listen how James writes to rich people in the congregation. Rich people in the congregation, that is, who have the wrong attitude towards wealth. not about riches, it's about how you use your riches. James 5. As I read these words, hear the echoes of Jesus' parable that we've been looking at. James 5 verse 1. Listen you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's a good question, isn't it? Are you serving money? It's a question I'm asking myself this week. Am I serving money? Who is your master? Who is my master? And because we find it so hard to assess ourselves, what would an objective outsider say? Let's say an accountant. If an accountant were to examine your family budget, your credit card statements, your checkbook, would he or she recognise from your financial dealings that you were a Christian? Maybe that's the sort of question we need to ask. We ignore the question at our peril. The peril of discovering that we were like the Pharisees and we weren't saved at all because we're serving money. And Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray together.